The Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast is brought to you by ITO Coaching and Performance. You can find them at itlcoaching.com. ITO Coaching and Performance exists to build a community of athletes set on reaching goals and serving the community. They have a passion for helping people achieve their goals and dreams. ITO coaches are real people with phones, emails, and the desire to spend time with you during your training. They are vested in ITL athletes. ITL takes a communal approach to coaching, so there's always someone available to answer questions and to help adjust the training schedule. An ITL coach will be glad to meet with you to chat about your goals and find the best plan to help you meet those goals. Again, their website is itlcoaching.com. The Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast is also brought to you by Blue Pineapple Travel. Blue Pineapple Travel can be found at bluepineappletravel.com. Blue Pineapple Travel are experienced travel agents who help you design the perfect trip. They are all well-traveled and knowledgeable, and they will be your advocates from start to finish. The agents at Blue Pineapple Travel love to help people plan their travel. Their goal is to match you with the trip that you want. Whether you're looking for relaxation or adventure, traveling solo or with a group, inside the U.S. or abroad, they are there to match you to the trip for you. Blue Pineapple Travel will help you curate all of the travel information out there to create the exact vacation that you want. Again, their website is bluepineappletravel.com. And finally, the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast is brought to you by SlayRx. You can find them at www.slayrx.com. SlayRx is a sports nutrition company that makes products for athletes, team sports, and anyone that trains or works outdoors. SlayRx was founded by an endurance athlete and University of Georgia food scientist who was unhappy with the choices he was offered on course in long course triathlons. He started making his own mixes and now you can enjoy those same mixes. SlayRx offers differing levels of electrolytes in their hydration products and you can get them with or without calories. You can either take their online test at SlayerX.com or you can be tested in their laboratory to determine the exact amount of liquid and electrolytes that you need to be consuming while racing. In addition to hydration products, SlayerX offers fueling products like their product Diesel, which is available with or without the optimum level of caffeine that is scientifically proven to legally enhance performance while limiting GI upset and diuretic impact. If you're looking for alternative gels, try SlayerX Spark Plug, a Pop Rocks-like powder that combines the same electrolytes that are in their other products, encapsulated caffeine, and quickly absorbed carbohydrates. It comes in a plastic tube so it can be carried while running, and it will work to enhance and fuel your alertness, general happiness, and performance. Remember, tell them the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast sent you by using the coupon code PLEASANT2020 at checkout on their website, and you'll get 10% off anything you purchase there. That's SlayerX.com, Pleasant2020. Test, don't guess, with SlayerX. Thanks to all of our sponsors for making the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast possible. Welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast, brought to you by ITO Coaching Performance, Blue Pineapple Travel, and Slayer X. My name is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. And I'm Patrick Ollinger, also an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. And I'm Michelle Frank, also an endurance athlete here in Atlanta, Georgia. We are coming at you again from our respective homes where we are sheltering in place under a governor's new order here to shelter in place in Georgia. So, Patrick, you making it along okay? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think we've been quarantined for about three weeks now. Mm -hmm. um, luckily, we're still able to get out and run. So mm -hmm. I'm just hoping, I'm holding on to that last piece of hope. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the, the, somebody joked in a conversation that we were having on Sunday morning that the weather in the south, the weather in the Atlanta area, has been the best that it's ever been in March and April. And it happens to be during a time when we can't get together and do group runs and group rides and all that sort of thing. And he is absolutely correct. <laughs> yeah. So I, I went out for a run today, solo, a walk and run since I'm still kind of in recovery mode from beating myself up so badly at the LA marathon. And the weather was ideal. It was perfect. There's a lot of pollen, but otherwise good. What about you, Michelle? You getting outside too? Um, yeah, I'm outside probably half of my runs. The other half are just more maybe strategic or following a strength workout. So I utilize the treadmill. Um, I tend to run on the treadmill more when it's hot than I do when it's cold anyway. So I, I feel like this sets me up gradually for getting into the hot summer months. But mm -hmm. otherwise, um, I know I'm definitely the anomaly, but I kind of like the pandemic lifestyle. You know, besides the paralyzing fear of getting sick and people dying, of course. Yeah. Well, um, you know, you, you, you and I were, were texting about it, that, that, that getting your kids to certain places on time, we talked about this last week, getting your kids to certain places on time is a huge source of stress for you. And the fact that you don't have to do that anymore, it's kind of nice. 
right? Yeah, I think I always want to do more. And you always try to explain that your body can't differentiate stress and I have enough to do. Um, mm -hmm. So now I kind of see that maybe you're right. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Market. <laughs> that is the closest to an admission of... <laughs> I hope we're not Michelle in years. We are we are recording. I did not make the mistake of forgetting to hit record with this and 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 let's just end the podcast now. Done. Thanks for joining us, everybody, on the most pleasant exhausting podcast. George is out, Costanza so, style. Well, it's it's fitting because we're actually talking about things that bring us joy today. And and you know, Michelle admitting that that sometimes I might be right about things, that brings me a great deal of joy. But Speaking of joy, I want to mention something that was bizarre that just came to an end yesterday on Monday. We're recording on Tuesday night uh, that some of y'all might have seen. It was the Quarantine Backyard Ultra that was put on by Personal Peak, which is a, a race management company out of Canada. Um, I, I know that Michelle followed along with it some because I was on a text chain with her and with another guy that I coach who, uh, who uh, does ultras and does trail races, that sort of thing. Patrick, did you follow the Quarantine Backyard Ultra? I did not. I'm almost shielding myself from that knowledge just because <laughs> the, the thought of running around like a helicopter pad or a cul-de-sac for a marathon just makes me cringe. Well, let me tell you all about it. All right. So, so it was actually put on my radar by, by my teammates in the Blue Ridge Relay. And uh, one of my teammates was thinking about doing it. He actually texted us and said, I might be stupid enough to actually do this. But 2,400 2, people, 2,400 people from around the world from 55 different countries were stupid enough to sign up for it. Um, but a backyard ultra is, is, is this sort of new format of, of ultra racing that's come up over the course of the past few years and, and they're last man standing races. And so you have everybody all start on the top of the hour and everybody runs roughly 4.167 miles, right? It's a little bit over six kilometers. Everybody runs a loop of a little bit over four miles. And, and you get back and you have to start one of those new loops at the top of every single hour. And if you ever cannot start the next loop, either because you're not done with the last loop or because you're too tired or because you fall asleep and sleep through it and all that sort of thing, then you're disqualified. And so the last person standing is the person that ultimately ends up winning the race there, 4.167 miles. And so if you run it fast, if you, you kind of sprint through it, you get longer time out of time to rest. If you sort of jog and walk through it, you're going to save more energy, but you're not going to have as much time to rest before the bell rings, literally, and they actually start you on the next 4.167 mile loop. So... The thing that made this one different is that it was virtual. Um, since everybody's quarantined, you couldn't bring a whole bunch of people together for a race. And so they brought 2,400 people together on Zoom and they said, all right, we're going to put a clock on Zoom and everybody has to start the 4.167 mile loop right when we ring the bell. Some of you are going to be running on treadmills. Some of you are going to be running outside, whatever works for you. And then when you finish it, you either take a picture of the treadmill or you take a picture of a GPS or you upload it to Strava or something else like that and you show us that you've done that. And then when we ring the bell again on Zoom, you have to be connected and you have to start running again, right? So again, 2,400 entries from 55 countries. They all started at 9 a.m. Eastern time. Uh, they started at 1 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time on Saturday, right? Um, and they continue going and going and going and going and going and going. Okay, so after the first day, so after the first 24 hours, there's only 71 runners left. <laughs> which, you know, you think about 2,300 people had dropped out by that point, right? But 71 of them were still going. By the end of the second day, there was only two people left. Um, so the end of 48 hours, only two people left. Now, the two people that were left was Michael Wardian, who we've talked about on here before, and a guy named Radic Brunner, um, who has finished on the podium at the last four Spartathlon races, which is a really popular 153-mile ultramarathon in Greece. Um, he's from the Czech Republic. Now, I'll go ahead and mention here the person who finished third. So the third to last person to drop out, the last person to drop out before the last two um, was Anna Carlson. Uh, she's a 34-year-old from Sweden. She dropped out on lap 46. So do the math real quick, 46 laps. So that means she dropped out at roughly mile 186, right? Oh after gosh. 46 hours, almost two days of it, right? Um, and she did the entire thing on a frozen lake in, in Sweden, she was above the Arctic Circle and she was actually forced to drop out of the race by a snowstorm. But anyway, <laughs> anyway. All right, so, so absolutely, I, I totally agree with you on that, but she didn't. So, so um, it gets down to these last two guys after lap 46 and they keep going and going and they go all day Monday, basically. 
um, and into the night on Monday night. And it's just Michael Wardian who's running outside. Um, he's running laps around his neighborhood, which is my sister's neighborhood. She's, she's my sister's neighbor, as I've talked about before. And his oldest son goes to school, is in class with, with, with my middle niece, my, my sister's middle daughter. Um, and they're just, he's just running laps around their, their neighborhood. And uh, Radic Brunner is running on the treadmill. Um, and they ring the bell, they both start. They ring the bell, they both start. They ring the bell, they both start. It gets all the way up to lap 63. And on lap 63, so mind you, this is now 63 hours into the race. And it's 63 times 4.167, whatever that is. It's like 260 at this point, right? And so they've run 260 miles over the course of two and a half days, and neither one of them's really slept, right? They, they ring the bell, and Michael Warding starts running his loop as he has run already 62 times. And Radic Brunner is standing on his treadmill and doesn't start the treadmill. Missed it. And so they start yelling at him on Zoom, you got to run. Radic, you got to run. You got to run. And he just kind of stands there for about 90 seconds. And finally, he pushes the button, and he starts moving, and he starts running. Doesn't count. Too the late. rules are when the bell rings, you got to start running. And he was standing there and didn't start running. And so he didn't answer the bell. And because of that, that meant that he was out of the race. Michael Wardian finished the last lap, um, finishes the, the last four mile loop there, uploads it, and he's declared the winner. Radic is pissed. <laughs> Radic was not happy about this, right? He blamed it on some technical issues. He blamed it on the fact that he couldn't speak English all that well. He said that the rules weren't clear. Da, 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 da. The rules were pretty clear. But by this point, everybody's been up for two and a half days. Michael Wardian's all confused. He's like, no, but I did it. And they're like, we're not talking to you. And the Zoom breakdown is all that is, is just completely crazy. Um, the race director is trying to explain to Radic that he's disqualified and that he's lost the race. And he starts crying. <laughs> <laughs> and this is all unfolding basically last night at about 11:45, and so so michelle's already in bed and i'm texting her and i'm texting our other friend brandon about like what's going on and i was like you should see this chaos that's going on here this controversial finish to this crazy race that took place so anyway props to michael wardian um and uh, and congratulations to him props to radic brunner the, the the czech runner who did the whole thing on a treadmill <laughs> Um, it, it was a pretty amazing thing to kind of follow along and watch for two days. But the reason why I wanted to mention it here at the outset of this is because this morning I got up and was talking about my wife or talking about it with my wife. And, and I realized that it's probably the longest conversation that she and I have had in about a month about something that wasn't COVID-19, <laughs> you know, and, and that's, that's, that could, it's kind of sad, but it's kind of where we are right now because we're, we're so swamped and so buried and so drenched in everything related to the coronavirus. And so with that in mind, Michelle and Patrick and I, and I swear I'm going to let y'all talk here, um, wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about things that weren't the coronavirus and that wasn't COVID-19 and something that, that, uh, that brings us joy when we go back to it and watch it or read it or talk about it or think about it over and over and over and over and over again. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're each going to bring you three things that bring us joy that we encourage you to go out and find so it can bring you joy as well. Did I kind of describe that well, Michelle and Patrick, through my extremely long quarantine backyard ultra entry point introduction? You did. Yeah. All right. Very good. Very good. Who's going first? Michelle, I'll let you take the first one. <laughs> All right, Michelle. I know I'm going last because uh, because I've talked the most so far. So go ahead, Michelle. Sure. So um, one thing I love to go back to, and it's, you know, I'm sure everyone is Shalane Flanagan's win at the New York City Marathon. Um, been following her for years. Um, I think she graduated from Georgia's favorite college in 2004. Why'd you have to bring it up? <laughs> <laughs> because it's too good not to just, just um, go with it just tell us the great part leave out the the, the flaws there's no part about the fact that she leads tar heel blue or okay oh, just keep so, talking. anyway just keep um you know i think we really first saw her <laughs> want to win a major um 2013 she and shalane showed up at boston and nike had made them custom super women kits <laughs> um, they were pretty cool so it's been a long time we've watched her chase a world marathon major title. We've seen heartbreak from her. Um, and for, she said, you know, she always wanted to win Boston or New York. Those would be the two. And I think they're the two most prominent world marathon majors for an American to win. And 
-hmm. It was just a perfect day two years ago. Um, she ran with a pack and it just gradually broke down mile after mile. And then by mile 23, you know, she just took the lead and you had three miles. So a solid 15, 16 minutes of watching her get further and further away and you can read her face and um, just those 15 minutes of watching that look like the reward for a lifetime of hard work. You don't really get to see uh, any of that any other time, so to speak, even if you come in second or third place or make an Olympic team, there was just something different about being the first American that had won the New York city marathon, first American woman in decades. Um, you cannot watch that replay, which is everywhere. YouTube probably is the easiest place to find it and, and not just be, I don't know, tears, you know, elation, all of the things. Um, she had that famous, you know, F yeah moment that kind of went viral. I don't know if I can curse on here. So I just was really careful. That's um, a highly syndicated show, Michelle. I don't <laughs> want to be careful, but I just, you know, George's kids might walk in or something. So um, anyway, I watched it sometimes. I think it's inspiring. Um, I think a lot of people can go back to it. And I think to watch somebody who dedicated their life to the sport and, you know, can walk away feeling like they've given it all and gotten everything from it. And that win is sort of the pillar uh, of her career. Um, so I would think, yeah, go watch it. Just watch the last 30 minutes. You got nothing else to do. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, one of the things that's so fun always about watching races when they're, when they're happening um, is, is when they're happening. So before you actually know who's going to win, you're watching it and you see it unfold in the way you want it to unfold, particularly in a marathon, but you're just like, Oh, please don't let anything go wrong. And so you're excited, right. but you're nervous at the same time, you know? And like, I right. feel like, I feel like that's such a unique feeling inside of endurance sports that that combination of nervousness and excitement. And so whenever I go back and watch like that race or, or even like, like the 2014 Boston marathon, the Mebka Flesky one, you know, yeah. you know it, it reminds me of those times of watching that and being like, this is gonna be great. This is great. Please don't let anything go wrong. <laughs> right. I mean, the thing is, is when, when you watch that and you see Shalane come into the park, I mean, you just know she has it. Like mm -hmm. this is everything she's ever wanted and she's mm -hmm. not going to give up, you know, a 10th of a second. And you just, you can, I don't know, you can feel the adrenaline racing the whole time. You just can watch it with chills for mm -hmm. you know, a solid 15, 17 minutes. So. Mm -hmm. Right on, right on. Very good. Patrick, what's yours? Yeah. So like a lot of um, folks, a lot, of, a lot of sports fans out there who are missing live sports and missing a lot of that content via podcast and, and kind of live events, I spent a lot of time going back and watching old games, or not so much watching old games, but just having them on in the background. Um, just like Michelle mentioned with like the New York City Marathon, the Shailene one. Um, and the real that, beauty okay, kind of, I'm interrupting you. Is that what they're putting on ESPN right now? Are they putting like old correct. games on right now? Yes. And the ratings okay. are actually pretty high. Yeah. All right, cool. That's good. Yeah. It's because I, I don't get ESPN live, but but I figured that's what they should be doing. And I think that's pretty cool. Anyway, keep going. Yeah, well, because think about it too with it. If you were to put on a replay of an old game, you can pick your favorite. It's not like a live sporting event where you have to have kind of the drudgery of the preseason and week one games. You mm -hmm. can kind of jump right into the most special moments mm -hmm. right out of the gate. Mm -hmm. um, and even still, you can even have moments that aren't necessarily like Super Bowls, but you can pick moments like just Tony Romo's first game, playing for the Dallas Cowboys, things like that where people look back and go, oh, I remember that, and kind of remember where they were at that time. And it's kind yeah. of interesting to see, like, these people who are now, like, announcers and, and older, and they got their baby face, they're 22, 23 years old, and, yeah. you know, still talking about how they just left college or something like that. <laughs> so um, it's pretty neat. And so uh, that's, that's what I've seen. You know, I would say I spent a lot of kind of my, my entertainment to kind of fill the content void. And to kind of actually piggyback off Michelle's, I think the biggest kind of recommendation I have and what I'm really looking forward to the most is the new uh, Michael Jordan documentary, or really Chicago Bulls documentary, which mm -hmm. is coming out. Which, by the way, Michael Jordan, another UNC alum. <laughs> um, in case you didn't know that. I don't understand why y'all got to bring it up. Let's just, let's just leave it that great things, inspiring things, we can just leave out the fact they went to UNC. Why do we got to bring it up? <laughs> the easiest way to troll you. That's it is true. That's fair. Easy. That's true. That's true. 
<laughs> and for any of y'all who, or for anybody who um, is familiar with ESPN, like the ESPN 30 for 30 documentaries, where they made a new documentary about the biggest sporting news of that particular year from the year ESPN was um, um, born through kind of their 30th anniversary year. Um, you know that one of the real kind of values of a lot of these sports documentaries is it takes you back to that time and place, right? Because sports are a lot like music. It really kind of lives in a specific time zone. Like when you think of the Bulls of, in the 90s, you think back to like the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. You think back to the 90s. You think back to that fashion. It's almost like when you talk about the Beatles, you can't help but think about like the late 60s, right? Mm. I mean, it, it really is um, tied to the time and, and a place. And so that's what makes these really unique is a lot of times when you watch an old game or an old or a documentary about a sporting event or you relive a sporting moment like Michelle was talking about, like I said, you kind of remember where you were at that time. Um, now, for me, I was a little boy. I thought Michael Jordan was the coolest thing ever. Um, I just thought he could do anything. And so it's kind of fun to rewatch some of these documentaries and see and think about where I was at that time and just how much that team and that person captured my imagination. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not released yet. They moved out the release date till April, but I can't wait to see it. And I just highly recommend that along with many other uh, ESPN 30 for 30 documentaries. Right on. And so it's, it's a multi-part docu-series, right? Yeah, I think it's like eight to 10 episodes. Yeah, yeah, it's I a mean, bunch, it's, which is, which is it's cool. Crazy. It's like the in-style in thing right now. So, yeah. In the preview, they got like Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, Oprah, Barack Obama, and Justin Timberlake. <laughs> I'm like, how do all these people have opinions about the 1990s <laughs> Chicago Bulls? Like, this is insane. Right on, right on. Very good. Well, all of those make sense until you mentioned Justin Timberlake, but at the same time, Justin Timberlake, you know, such a force of the mid to late 90s culturally. So, you know... There, there, there you go, situating it into the end of the, the, the larger landscape. So very nice. Um, and it's just about the Bulls generally in the 1990s? I think it was, you know, I, I still don't know. Documentary hasn't been released yet. I just think it's about how they were such a tour de force. I mean, right. as you know, I mean, the most successful sports marketing campaign in history. <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, when you look at how popular Michael Jordan was, he was more recognizable than Bill Clinton, the president at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, it was just something we had never seen before. It was such a perfect marriage of cable television exploding, mm -hmm. this, you know, superstar athlete in a sport that was global, unlike football, which is obviously, you know, only really popular here in the States, mm -hmm. and playing in a sport like basketball that really showcases the best player in a way that, like, soccer doesn't. I mean, soccer, be the greatest player ever, and not score a goal for five straight games. Very good. So, very cool, very cool. Something to look forward to indeed. All right, so so the first one I'm going to share is is also a race that we go back to and I go back to over and over and over again, and it's a it's a race that that I like to watch over and over again, in part because it's it's a good race that stands alone, but also because of of it informs kind of where we are now or the people that we're still talking so much about now mm -hmm. were in a different period at the time, and this is the the 2008 Olympic men's 5,000 meter uh, final yes. uh, from Beijing. Um, and it pitted three really, well, it pitted a lot of really great runners against one another, but, but there's three runners, uh, that, that really kind of shaped the race. And two of them we're talking still a lot about today. Um, those three runners were Kenanisa Bekele, Eliud Kipchoge and Bernard Lagat. Now it seems almost kind of weird to talk about Eliud Kipchoge as, oh, he was a major player in this Olympic 5,000 meter race, but um, that he, name sounds familiar. Did he do yeah, anything right? else after that? Right, right. But, but I mean, we, he's so closely associated with being like the greatest marathoner of all time now that we tend to forget about the fact that he won the world championship in Paris in the 5,000 meters in 2003 when he was only about 19 years old. And so, um, so, so yeah, he had a long career on the track um, prior to this, and one of his big rivals on the track was Kenanisa Bekele. But anyway, to set it up a little bit here, so Kenanisa Bekele at this point was kind of at the height of his powers as a track athlete. Um, he had won gold in the 10,000 meters in the 2004 Olympic Games, and then he had won gold again in the 10,000 meters in the 2008 Olympic Games. In the 2004 Olympic Games, however, he won silver in the 5K behind a guy named Hisham El-Garouche. Now, Hisham El-Garouche is, is still to this day the world record holder in the mile. He's from Morocco. Um, and uh, he won the 1,500 and the 5,000 meters at the 2004 Olympic Games by outkicking Kenanisa Bekele, and Bekele ended up getting the silver. Um, at this point, 
Kennedy Zabekele had already won 11 gold medals in world cross country championships, Mm -hmm. um, but he had won zero medals, zero gold medals in world championship or Olympic championships in the 5,000 meters. And so a major goal for him, a major hole in his, his resume was doubling in the 10,000 meters and the 5,000 meters in Olympic games and just winning the 5,000 meters at a world championships or Olympic championships. That was just a big hole in the resume of somebody who many people consider to be the greatest runner of all time. You also had Elliot Kipchoge, who I mentioned had gold in the 2,000 meters in uh, or the 5,000 meters in the 2003 world championships in Paris. He'd won Mm -hmm. bronze in that same race where Hisham El Garouche had won and uh, uh, Kennedy Zabekele had finished second in Athens in 2004. And then he had finished, he had won the silver medal in 2007 in the world championships in the 5,000 meters. And then you had the gold medalist from that race in 2007 in the world championships in Bernard Legat. He had also won the 1500 meters. And so you had all of these guys, all of whom had either had won medals at that event or different events all coming together who had major designs on trying to win the 5,000 meters here at the Olympic games. Now, Bernard Legat had won the 1500 meters in the 5k. Kennedy Sebekele had been out kicked by a 1500 meter gold medal in 2004. And so Kennedy Sebekele knew that if he was going to win the race, he was going to have to try and make it hard from an earlier time. He was not going to be able to leave it up to a kick towards the finish. And so with about 2,500 meters left, so about halfway through the race, Kenanisa Bekele goes to the front of the race and drops the pace about five seconds per lap down to about four minute per mile pace. He drops it down to about 60 minutes per lap. And then after that, they go 60, 61, 59, 61, and they start mm-hmm. clicking off all of these super, super fast laps. And Bekele is, is basically just stringing out the whole pack and and people just start dropping off and dropping off and dropping off and dropping off. The first one of them is drop off is Bernard Legat. And then the very last person to drop off, doesn't drop off until the last lap, is, is Elliot Kipchoge. Um, and it's Correct. just, it's, it's an amazing race to see. Um, uh, not only can Anisa Bekele just, just put on a master class of how to, to beat kickers in a 5K race and, and how to just do this, this monstrous running race, um, but also to, to put Bernard Legat and, and Elliot Kipchoge, for lack of a better way of saying it, how to put them in their place. And that's just not something you see a whole lot and definitely not something you saw a whole lot in 2008 and definitely not something you see in the marathon in 2020 with, with, with Elliot Kipchoge. And so just super interesting to see that and super interesting to see that race unfold. So it's my favorite race to watch of all time. And, and by all means, I, I strongly recommend that everybody go check it out. So that's the 2008 men's Olympic 5,000 meter final from Beijing. Um, by the way, we'll, we'll post all these links somewhere where we'll post them on Facebook or maybe we'll revive our old, uh, our old blog page or something like that. We'll post all the links for you so you can have to check all this stuff out. What were you about to say, Patrick? That's the guy too. That's one of the most fun things about rewatching old sporting events is what you learn like hmm. 10 years after the fact, right? Like hmm. I could tell you several times I would just have kind of an old game on in the background and I'd all of a sudden go, you know, I didn't realize how good this player was. Hmm. Because they might have been playing for a team that was on the decline, so you don't realize they're actually kind of keeping the, the team afloat. And, the, you know, you see the brand name, and so you think the team is better than they actually are. Um, Someone like an Elliot Kipchoge, they just might get lost in the shuffle of, you know, kind of like a Charles Barkley, who just was unfortunately born around the same year as Michael Jordan, so he just never actually got to win. Mm-hmm. Um, but you kind of – it's amazing how much time brings clarity. And so it's sometimes fun to go back and watch some of those races, like you even mentioned, where you see some of those big names. And you can kind of see a bit more clearly just how talented some of these people were that might have been hidden or were overshadowed by a bigger name. It's like you can see the path they followed to greatness, right? Like like Mm -hmm. sometimes it can feel like they came out of nowhere and they didn't. They came from somewhere, right? Um, Right. That that came out of nowhere was a fourth place behind Kipchoge. (laughs) You know what I mean? It was something like, oh, wait a minute. That makes a lot of sense now. Right, right, right. Yeah. And actually, and and on a similar note, on a related note, um, because Kipchoge didn't win that race, um, and and a lot of people in Kenya, particularly the powers that be in Kenya, started looking at him as maybe like like a flash in the pan who wasn't able to win the big race. 
um, yeah. because he had won that gold in 2003 in the world championships, but then he had gotten a bronze in 2004 and then a silver in 2007 in the world championships and then another silver in the 2008 Olympic games. And so a lot of people in Kenya started looking at him saying, ah, well, you know, he's, he's sort of, you know, an also ran, he's not good enough to ever actually do this. And so they didn't put him on the Olympic team in 2012 because of that. And because Incredible. they didn't put him on the Olympic team for track, that's the reason why he went ahead and moved up to the marathon and literally the rest is history as far as that goes. <laughs> Incredible. So, kind of incredible. Kind of incredible. Um, Michelle, what's your next one? Um, so I know it's kind of cliche, and I promise I'll talk about something <laughs> else after this besides female uh, distance runners. But 2018 Boston Marathon, um, Des Linden's win was just a historic moment, I think, for really all of women's distance running. Mm -hmm. uh, even the start of that race, I think, even on the men's side, it was pretty uh, – Unbelievable. I remember, George, did you send me a message about Yuki's first mile? <laughs> yeah. I'll the, never forget it, two years ago a text message that said something <laughs> like, well, he's dead. So, and then so. all of a sudden, like, he wins the race. So, anyway, yeah. but, um, you know, I think Des has been running Boston for 10 years and we've seen her make two Olympic teams and she is by far the most consistent, uh, dominant, top five finisher uh runs almost everything like a metronome even splits great sense of humor lots of whiskey bourbon jokes out there i just mm -hmm. don't know anybody that doesn't love her um whether they actually know her as a person or just follow her um as a fan of the sport so i think that race was sort of the big is shilling gonna retire isn't she and all the pressure was on her this might be her last chance um, the weather was horrible. Everybody was freezing cold, pouring down rain. And we saw a little bit into the race. Shalane even stopped to go to the bathroom and Des stayed back and, you know, helped her get back to the pack. And then all of a sudden it's just, everyone's trying to, you know, she was trying to help everyone get back up and then everyone started dropping and then she's just there in front all of a sudden in the lead. And her dream is to win Boston. It's, she's, you know, made no secrets of that um and it's interesting because i feel like she didn't really realize that she might actually have the win until she kind of went under that bridge and then just to watch her it's kind of the same feeling as watching shalane win new york just those final mm -hmm. moments of we saw her lose by what a second you know 2011 i mean whatever it was um she got beat on boylston street so you're just sitting there watching her you know, she makes the right turn on Hereford, the left. I mean, it was just an amazing, an amazing accomplishment. So um, I probably, I mean, I've watched Shalane in New York City more because it's a few months ahead of her. Um, but it's, it's hard to differentiate between those two. So I feel like if you want a feel good moment uh, in women's marathoning, you got to watch those two races. And it's hard to talk about one and not talk about the other. So truth. Very good. Yeah, I remember b before that race started, we, we were talking about the people that we thought were going to win. And and Patrick, who did you choose to win that Boston Marathon? I honestly don't remember. You chose Des <laughs> Linden, Mr. Humble. Um, <laughs> so, so you chose Des Linden. And it's funny. And, and the reason why I bring it up is because, because by that point in her career, by 2018, Des mm -hmm. Linden had finished in the top five yeah. So you probably know the exact number, but a dozen times, right? Yeah. I mean, she, she was basically a perennial top five finisher and never quite the winner. Always the bridesmaid, never quite the bride. And and you kind of mentioned that. And I was like, yeah, that'd be cool. But I, there was no way I was picking her because I was like, yeah, she'll finish like fifth or something. You know, she'll finish fourth. Um, and and I can't close like that Kitchogi guy. <laughs> yeah. Both of them can't, can't and, win the gold. And, and I, I, I just I didn't realize until afterwards um, how much I had kind of, I didn't realize until after she won, um, how much mm -hmm. I had kind of written her off as, as somebody who would always sort of be second and third and never quite win. Um, and I think it's super cool because now that she does have like a world marathon major victory on her resume, it's elevated her so much. Yeah. Um, and, and it's elevated the respect that people have for her so much, whether they, whether they intended to disrespect her or not. Like, I think I was disrespecting her. And I, I wasn't really intended to. I, she had just kind of gotten into that place in my brain where I was like, okay, she's always going to be second or third. Um, and, and I realized that I had always been kind of disrespecting her, writing her off because of that. And I, I shouldn't have been doing that. So, yeah. I also think in a similar way that um, New York kind of capsulates career, you know, Des 
kind yeah. of feels like her win in Boston. She accomplished everything she wanted to accomplish. And now she really gets to decide, should I do this? Should I keep doing it? And I'm going to keep doing it because I love it and because it's fun, not because it's just my job and it's the only job I can have. Um, she made over a million dollars that year just in appearance fees after she won Boston. So to see her come back and, you know, still kind of put the pedal to the metal and have an amazing performance at the Olympic trials a few weeks ago, come up one place short, you know, hopes to run New York in the fall. Um, mm -hmm. It's great to watch somebody run who just runs for the love of sport. And I think that's kind of what she shows us all. Um, and to have the win in kind of her back pocket is, it's great. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I would say too, one of my favorite things in sports is to see that person finally cross the threshold and finally get that victory that's been eluding them. As sure. you mentioned, George, like they've been second, they've been third, they've put in the time for, you know, a decade plus of being in the mix. They just never had that one year or that one race where it was downpouring in 35 degrees. So they won the Boston marathon instead of getting third. Mm -hmm. right. Um, it is cool. It's like it's like LeBron James finally getting the championship with the Cavaliers. It's like Dan Jansen, that speed skater, finally getting gold after like the yes. Olympics and stuff. You know, I mean, yeah, there there is something to be said for you know that the person that you really want to see win that you just waited so long to see win and they finally pull it off. Yeah, it's it's cool to see. It's very cool to see. Very good, Patrick. What's your next one? Oh, my, I'm up next. My uh, big one that I have been rewatching not just during quarantine, but really since I was a freshman in high school and first um, had my first kind of cross-country state meet and we all got together as a team and would watch this race, is the 1972 Olympic 5K with Steve Prefontaine. Right on. And I'm even going to let you throw in a bit of a twist. Not only do I rewatch the actual race and the actual like Olympic footage from NBC, but of course, I rewatched the Without Limits reenactment with Jared Leto <laughs> and all of the background music in its glory because with with, with, Billy, be with Billy Crudup playing C. Prefontaine and Pat Porter, uh, multi-time U.S. Uh, cross country champion, playing Lassie Viren. Yeah. By the way, two things. So one, uh, Billy Crudup far better than Jared Leto. Like that is an automatic <laughs> X on the other Prefontaine. I don't know who cast. Um, what I thought, oh yeah, this is like a great tough athlete, this guy. Um, also, when you rewatch the uh, Without Limits, you can clearly see the actor for the Los Angeles is significantly faster than Crudup and is just like right. trying to like keep it close and like tw distort his face to make it look like he's trying hard. He's an actual runner. Yeah, but. yeah. <laughs> now, 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 before before we t make make too much fun of Jared Leto, let's do point out that he went on to win a, a an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress in, in or Best Best Supporting Actor in in uh, Dallas Buyers Club much later on. But anyway, um, so which was well deserved. Anyway, keep going. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so I really, I mean, that's obviously the race. In a way, it's a, what I would say it's the race a lot of um, high schoolers first get hooked on in terms of watching track and field because they had the same route I did. You probably grew up playing soccer or some other sport. You try cross country for the first time. You find out it's a sport that doesn't cut people. You're like, fantastic. Sounds like the sport for me. <laughs> and then, you know, as a team, you know, it's, it's like a yearly um, tradition for cross country, high school cross country teams to watch one of those movies, like the night before the big state meet is like a, you know, fun bonding experience or motivation. And that's kind of was what gets you hooked. And of course the movie version they make it much more dramatic. They make the drama seem much more um, you know, apparent than just like a track meet where it is a bit more sterile and a bit more um, formal. So that's my second entry into this game. That race was dramatic though, dude. That's the thing about oh, yeah. it. That, 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 so, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I may have gone back and watched the Without Limits version on occasion over the course of the past few years um, in the same way that every now and then I'll go back and watch the final fight from Creed or Rocky and all that sort of thing. But anyway, <laughs> um, uh, if I actually watched that race, now when you mentioned to me the other day that this is one of the ones you were thinking about talking about tonight, I, I went back and watched it. That yeah. race is super, super compelling as well and it's actually very similar to the race that i just talked about the 5k in the uh, mm -hmm. in the 2008 olympics in the sense that c prefontaine now he waited a little bit longer he waited about two laps longer um until there was four laps to go and and he went to the front to try and make it faster in order to try and take the kick out of the people that had uh, stronger finishes stronger sprints than he did mm -hmm. uh, they ran those last four laps in about four minutes um uh, so so last four laps in about 
four minute per mile pace. Um, I think it, yeah, I think it was four twelve. No, yeah. wait, no, 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 it was faster than that. It was like four yeah. one. Yeah. Um, and so, so he, um, but, but he, the, the fascinating thing about that is that, that the other runners would push to the front and, and Steve Prefontaine at the time was still an undergrad at Oregon and was known yeah. for wanting to be in the front and wanting to lead the race. And so other leader, other, other people would push to the front of the race and rather than sort of holding back for an instant and trying to, to regain some energy, he would push back up to the front. Um, and mm-hmm. with about 200 meters to go running down the back stretch of the last lap, he pushes back up to the front again, like just tears down the back stretch of the track. And then it's just completely spent and ends up in finishing fourth in that race. Um, the, the epilogue well, of that, alert. so <laughs> it's history, man. There's no such thing as spoilers in history. <laughs> so, so Burshot Hamilton. <laughs> also, I just got it. I looked it up. It was 404. So you were much better. There you go. Yeah. So, so super yeah, no, fast the, the, those last four laps. The other interesting part too about that race, and I think it, either the American or the British announcer points it out. I can't remember which one, um, which broadcast it was on. They make the point that usually in a big major race, you only get one chance to lead the race. Mm-hmm. But he led it multiple times because he made the surge, I think, with a mile to go. Then again, he took the lead at like 600 to go. Mm-hmm. Then he really, then on the back stretch, he tried to take the lead again and just about got it before the turn. Yeah. Uh, so that's what made that race also super compelling, as you mentioned, is that there was an actual back and forth instead of just one person or a group of people gradually pulling away. Right on. Two other quick things I'll say about it. One, just like we were talking about Kennedy Sebekele as well just a minute ago, Lassie Viren was winning the 10,000 meters and the 5,000 meters in the same Olympics at that point too. Yeah. Um, and so so a pretty credible, incredible accomplishment on his part as well. And then Not just up, winning too, but tripping and falling, right, yeah. in the 10,000 and then yeah. still winning. Yeah. And then, and then ended up winning the 5,000 meters and looks brilliant doing it. So if you mm-hmm. watch the race, you want to watch Prefontaine and, and the, the gutsiness of his performance is inspiring, but also just the, the, the strength and power and dominance of Lassie Viren is also super impressive in that race too. And then the other thing to mention about it too, is the epilogue of that story is that, that Steve Prefontaine, that was his last Olympic race. Um, mm-hmm. because of course he was killed in a car wreck in 1975. So he has this kind of James Dean type quality, uh, you know, uh, dying young, yeah. uh, in his prime, uh, that, that kind of gives him a, almost a mythic quality in, uh, in, in American distance running lore. So, so yeah, very good. Very good. Cool one. All right. So I'm going to say another race too, that you can also go and watch on, on YouTube. So, so yeah, by all means, look up, look up Shalane Flanagan's race on YouTube. Look up Des, Des Linden's uh, race on YouTube. Look up the 2008 5,000 meter Olympic final on YouTube. Look up the 1972 uh, uh, Olympic 5,000 meter men's final there from Munich. And then I'm actually going to give you one from that same Olympics. Um, and that's the 800 meters men's final from the 1972 Olympic games. Um, and this had an American in the race, a guy named Dave Waddle. Um, now Dave Waddle was a native of Canton, Ohio. Um, and he went to Bowling Green State University and just like Steve Prefontaine was an undergrad at Oregon, he was an undergrad at Bowling Green at the time. Um, and Dave, well, first of all, let's say this, um, Michelle, have you ever run an 800 meter race? Yes, I did once. I think at a Atlanta track club, all comers meet and it was horrible. It is horrible. Yeah. It sounds like it left an impression. It is. It is. There's nothing worse than 800s. No. The, the, the 800 meter race, if you ask any person to give any, any well-schooled person to give you an objective opinion about what the hardest race in track is, the answer is the 800 meters. I agree. Now, now there could, I'm not going to talk about distance race. I'm talking about the hardest race in, in track and field is the 800 meters. Perhaps a close second would be the 400 meter hurdles because you have to run flat out for 400 meters and jumping over stuff, right? But the 800 meters is so hard because it is a dead sprint for two full laps. Um, and, and it is, is such a painful, difficult race to run. Um, and so Dave Waddle, anyway, um, uh, uh, was a runner from, from Canton, Ohio, who went to Bowling Green. And at the start of the race, they're all kind of standing around. And you have a couple of African runners. You have the world champion who is the favorite, this guy from the USSR named Yevgeny Arzanov. Uh, Arzanov. Um, uh, standing on the starting line, and all these guys, they look like runners, they're trim, they have uniforms that fit them. And then you have Dave Waddle, who's taller than the rest of them. And he has this long hair. And so he's wearing a golf cap to keep the, the, the stuff out of his hair out of his eyes. He just looks like a clown. Um, he, he literally yeah. looks like someone like wandered out of the crowd and just like found himself on the track. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the gun goes off. And the whole field runs away and the clown wearing the golf hat 
literally falls 10 meters off the back of the pack. And it's like, why did they let this, you know, the, this, this dude in this race here, he, he clearly doesn't belong. Right. And so they, they go all the way around the first lap and, and first lap is super fast as it always is because they hear meters. And like we said, it's the hardest race in track and, and, and they're dead sprinting here. And they, uh, they, they, they come through the first lap. And by the time they get to the first lap, Dave Waddle has basically barely caught up to the back of the pack. And so now he's merely in last place as opposed to being 10 meters off the back of the pack, which is what he was at the 200 meter mark. Um, right. And then they go around the curve and he kind of just sort of gradually starts picking people off. He passes one, he passes two. There's only like eight or nine people in the final here. And so he passes three, he passes four. And then by the time they get all the way around the track with, with 400 meters to go, he's in fourth place. Now, mind you, he's in fourth place. He's probably three meters behind the two guys who are in second and third that are running side by side, but he's a good 10 meters still behind the world champion from the USSR, Yevgeny Arzanov. Um, and running, 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 50 meters left, he's still six meters down. But Arzanov totally tied up there in the last five meters, um, and Dave Waddle snuck past him and won by .03 seconds. Um, and so went from literally off the back of the pack by 10 meters to just barely squeezing past in the last meter of the race to win by 0.03 seconds and take the gold medal. Um, it's a stunning race to watch. And it's literally the type of race that every time I watch it, I'm like out of my seat watching it. <laughs> because yeah. you, you watch it and you're like, there's no way he's going to win this race. And you know he's going to win the race because you've already watched it 50 times. And it's like, how does he win this race? And Dan, if he doesn't win the race every single time I watch it, it's, it's, it's kind of incredible. <laughs> um, and he's as stunned as anybody else. He's sitting there at the, at the finish kind of looking around with this look on his face like he's completely stunned. Um, they, at that time in 1972, they pretty much used to just kind of shuffle you right off to the medal ceremony. He was so shocked and still in shock when they're giving him the gold medal that he actually forgot to take his hat off during the, during the national anthem. And so this ratty golf hat that he had on during the race itself, he never ended up taking it off even for the national anthem. A lot of people thought it was like a political statement or something, but, but it wasn't. Um, it's funny, like, um, there's a coach in Atlanta named Rachel Raspberry. Um, and her brother is a really good friend of mine and I was actually in his wedding and their dad went to Bowling Green with Dave Waddle and, and their dad one time was telling her, was telling Rachel about how Dave Waddle went to college with him. And he said, yeah, and he won a gold medal and he shows, he shows the race and she sees him fall back and he's even looking with like 50 meters to go. She's like, I thought he won this race. And then he won because <laughs> you're literally watching it with 50 meters to go. You're like, oh, wait, I thought he won this race. Oh, wait, he did win this race. It's incredible. Um, but to top it all off, Dave Waddle, by the way, he's my birthday twin. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Most important part of the conversation. So, absolutely. Yeah. He was, I, I was born on his 24th birthday. He was exactly it's 24 years old. It's the little things that count. So absolutely. So epilogue with him. He's now retired. He went into higher ed administration and he worked at Rhodes College for 28 years in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, he ended up spending a year or two at Millsaps College and a year or two at Wesleyan University in Delaware, Ohio. And then he retired in like 2012 or something like that. So, so yeah, go back, check out that 1972 Olympic 800 meter final from Munich um, with Dave Waddle. All right, Michelle, give us your last one. Sure. So I'm going to take us away from the live action screen uh, replays and go to a book that I read recently, um, probably about a year ago, but it made a huge impact on me. And uh, it's Agassiz's book. And I mm -hmm. think that at the time that I read it, a lot resonated with me. I played competitive tennis till I was about 14. Um, but there's a few things that really stuck with me from the book that I think can relate to any uh, endurance athlete's life and just life in general. Um, I uh, think you're talking about Andre Agassi, the tennis player, right? I am. Sorry. What, what, what's, what's the name of his book? Is it Agassi? No, I think it's called open. Is okay. it? I don't know. Why don't I know the title? I'll look it up. You keep talking. Okay. Um, so I guess a big thing is, you know, he was obviously the best tennis player in the world in 1996 and fell pretty hard. Uh, and I think he mentions in the book how he talked about, um, he got to the point where he realized that just because he didn't choose his life didn't mean he couldn't kind of take ownership of it. And if you read the book, it's kind of a long history of his father's pressure on him to become the best tennis player in the world. And he took him out of school and he went to train full time at an academy at a young age. Um, and he kind of just got to be the best player in the world, even though he didn't even really like the sport. Mm -hmm. And 
it's once he fell pretty hard, um, he came back by 1999 and he was number one again. And he went on to compete for probably another six or seven years. Um, but just kind of that motto of no matter how down and out you are, doesn't mean you can't just kind of take ownership of your own situation and, and rise again. Um, I, I liked that. I didn't really recognize it as much as I was watching him in those years, but I can remember yeah. um, how embarrassing his fall was and how amazing it was to see him rise to be number one again in the world. Mm-hmm. And then I would say um, he talks a lot about how he enjoys the work that went into being the best that there was, you know, he was number one in the world for a while. Um, and, but that the scoreboard doesn't show everything. Like it only shows who wins and who loses. And I think a lot of us can relate to that when we put in a six months or, you know, train for one big race a year, maybe two big races a year. And maybe the ending number, or the ending place isn't what we want, but you have to look at kind of everything that went into it. And that in and of itself is somewhat of a success. And you can continue to build off of that year after year. So, um, he made a big point about tennis is win or lose, but that's not really, it's not really that binary in general, like life and stuff. So I really liked that. And um, what I love is that I think he felt since he didn't have a chance at an education, um, he has basically ever since, I don't know, he was 24. I think he funded his first foundation for underprivileged kids in Las Vegas. And now, I mean, his foundation's, well, for education, he says he estimates he's probably responsible for about 40,000 kids um, all over the world right now and getting an education that they otherwise wouldn't have access to. So I think it's a good example of professional athletes get paid whatever they get paid millions and millions of dollars, but um, turn around and give something that you didn't get as yourself for yourself when you were younger to other people who otherwise wouldn't be able to have the education. So I just think he gets a bad rap, like for what he was in the nineties, got into drugs a little bit, got a ponytail, but he seems to, <laughs> <laughs> you know, when a ponytail. Those are on equal planes, by the way, of evilness. Men with long hair back then was a big deal. Like that was a statement. Now it's just, it's everywhere. And even more so because of the pandemic, nobody's getting a haircut. So, um, but I think the book itself is amazing in terms of what, mental your mental mentality on life and life and sport and everything can do because it's astonishing when you read how much he hated tennis Mm. but how he became the best in the world Mm. um and just the power of the mind Mm. and i don't know i i haven't i haven't spoken to anybody about it who didn't love it even people who aren't kind of fond of tennis um so right on yeah it it, it is called open by the way yeah and so so so, so you're right. You're right. I just didn't know. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah. It, so two things I'll say about it. One, you know, I, I, I'm interested in reading it. I haven't read it. Um, it, it was mentioned in a, in a, a book that, that, um, both Patrick and I read last year called play on. Um, mm-hmm. um, but, um, and since then I've been kind of thinking about reading it and, and maybe listening to it. Um, and so I'm not listening to as many books on tape right now cause I'm not in my car as much right now, but, but, um, but I, but I, I am so- read the audio. What'd you say? It's his voice reading oh, that's cool. the audio. I like so that. It's amazing. Yeah. So highly like recommend. That. Yeah, no, I, I very much tend to enjoy books more when it's the person who wrote it reading it. I don't know why that is. <laughs> um, but, um, but, but yeah, so, so one, one thing about it um, is that I do, I do remember really well, um, like him kind of disappearing first him being like the bad boy of tennis and, and that he yeah. had like, you know, the long hair and he had like the acid wash shorts and stuff like that, you know, and, and like he was sponsored by Nike and, and, and that kind of thing. Right. And then he kind of went away and came back. And so I, I do think it would be interesting to, to see, to read kind of the, the, the process behind which he disappeared and then had a renaissance, you know? Um, I think that would be interesting. But then the, the other thing I was going to say about it is in the book that Patrick and I read where they mention it, he talks, he quotes Agassi as talking about how lonely tennis is. Yeah. Um, yes. And, and how much mental strength you have to have in order to do it. And you, you think it's not, but he's like, you're by yourself out there and everybody's watching you. And, and like everybody's picking apart, like literally every stroke you make and the slightest mistake the slightest misstep means you're, you're, you're going to lose a point or something like that. And he talks about how, how mentally difficult that is and how lonely the, the, it is to be a singles player like that, which I had never really considered, but I think it's fascinating. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I, Michelle, I don't know if you've read much of David Foster Wallace, but like he talks about that same thing. He he grew up a child of like the youth tennis program where he spent most of his time just playing tennis with some trainer, more, you know, more so than with his actual parents. And he talks about kind of that loneliness and that single-minded focus. And the other thing that kind of struck me too about your description of that book, it gets to a lot of the things you were talking about, like with Shailene Flanagan and Des Linden, where, you know, a star athlete like an Agassiz, like, you know, Des putting in the work and it's always nice to see them get their due to get their medal that they can, you know, um, kind of use to validate their, their work, but they have to love the work to begin with. Um, and that's, that's just always such a fascinating thing to me. Um, Cause it's, I think it's something that, that taps into um, kind of an understanding that we all have as runners, even though we may not be like professional athletes like in Agassi. I think just that idea that you have to love the work before you see the success is a really powerful notion. I agree. Did, did he eventually then, I mean, so with that in mind, did, did he eventually, and this, I guess, is maybe a spoiler for the book, but again, it's an autobiography. There's no spoilers in real life. So, um, but, but did he find, Michelle, a love for the sport as part of yeah. his sort of rebirth into yeah. tennis? you know, he's, after a bad first marriage, he and Steffi Graf have been married for a while. They've got probably two teenagers now. Um, but I think it says in the book, you know, if you ask him if he just goes out and hits around, um, he says something like, no, it sounds like a nice idea, but as soon as you hit your first couple of balls, like you remember you can do this, but you're also reminded of what you can't do because yeah. of the level that you're at now versus where you were. Hmm. Um, so he doesn't play at all. Mm-hmm. He doesn't even, which is interesting because I've actually never picked up a racket since I quit when I was 14. Hmm. <laughs> so I can super relate to that. Um, kind of a, a, maybe a regret in my life, but anyway, so he does not love the sport. Um, he can be a fan of it, you know, and he said if he didn't have two kids, the guys who are the top guys in the world right now, he'd love to coach them, but mm. he couldn't coach them how he would want to coach them and be a father and work mm. for his foundation. So, yeah. uh, no, I don't think he ever really found his way back to the love of the game. Interesting. Interesting. I look forward to checking that out. Patrick, what's your third? Yeah, mine actually has a similar theme. It's not a sports book, but it's a book that was released, I think, about a year, year and a half ago. It's called Thinking in Bets by Annie Dukes. It's written by a professional poker player of 20-plus mm-hmm. years. And I'll kind of keep it brief, but it really – the thesis of the book is that every decision we make is essentially a bet on the future, right, with a lot of uncertainty, a lot of luck involved. And she just talks through, okay, if we were to apply a lot of the same principles to playing poker to kind of some of our real-life decisions – how would that actually affect how much less certain we are? Would, you know, in our, how we evaluate ourselves, how harsh we are on ourselves, that kind of a thing. Um, so it's just a phenomenal book. It hits on a lot of themes that I um, touch on in a lot of books. And, and it really is just kind of a handbook on decision-making and the science of decision-making. Hmm. Um, so it's a field that, that I've always been fascinated with. Um, and it's not super um, academic. So hmm. I've enjoyed it. And it's one I've gone back to over and over again. Once again, it's called Thinking in Bets, which, by the way, just that title alone. When I saw the the book on Goodreads is like something to be released in the near future, I was like, that's got me written all over it. <laughs> um, so anyways, uh, that's that's my big recommendation. Um, heavy influence from Michael Mobosson, who's a big investment um, uh, writer, and it kind of talks a lot about like the psychology of investing. Um, and kind of the common mistakes we make with money um, from kind of a psychological and decision-making perspective. Mm-hmm. So um, a name I'm sure like a Phil Colanger would recognize. But once again, book is called Thinking in Bets. Annie Duke, highly recommend to anybody who's at all interested in decision-making. So so the the reason why it was what was interesting for you to read is because it sort of explained, did it explain you to yourself, if you will? It like helped you understand the way that you go about making decisions? Totally. Yeah. And it, what it does is it articulates things. Um, it, it, what it does is it articulates things that we are always thinking. Right. But in a way that kind of helps place an actual framework to say, mm-hmm. um, this is what happened. This is how I should evaluate it or a potential method for evaluating. Here's how I can maybe move forward and think about things in a bit wiser fashion moving forward. Right on. In a bit more deliberate fashion, a bit more thoughtful, more intentional fashion. Yeah. I, I have that. I have a similar conversation with, with my students a lot 
because I'm teaching college sophomores. And mm-hmm. so by the time somebody is a college sophomore, if, if, if they, they usually have lived enough life that they can look around and they've noticed stuff and they know how things work, mm-hmm. but they don't have a language for explaining it or they can't articulate it very well. And so we'll do a reading or we'll have a class discussion or something else like that. And they're like, yes, I know exactly what you're talking about because I've seen that before but they've, they've never articulated or they never had it. And so, so, so that, that's a conversation that I've had a lot. And I think, I think having a language to explain something um, and having a framework for understanding something um, can do a lot. Um, my wife and I were having this conversation literally yesterday, as a matter of fact. Um, I, was, I was telling her about how I, 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 I like to be able to understand something before I can like really judge it and, and, and render a decision on it. And there's certain behavior of people around us that, that I don't totally understand right now. Um, and, and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm striving to understand it, um, because, and, and I, I just need a language to, and a framework to understand it. So very good. Cool, man. Can I put the positive side too, that, that I find most almost endearing with our conversations and part of your personality is you also, you can't appreciate me? something. Yes. Wait a second. There's going to be two compliments to me in a single podcast. That's right. That's wait fantastic. I haven't even heard what he's going to say. Okay. I, 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 you just wait. What's funny about you is like let's say you don't understand someone that someone could be like brad pitt someone who's been in our like a celebrity for 20 years and then all of a sudden you'll go like you know i think that guy's a pretty good actor <laughs> like because like you'll see a movie or something that's not a sudden, compliment you'll be able to like articulate oh yeah he's pretty good at like these types of scenes and the rest of us are just like yeah that's why he gets paid. I, <laughs> That's why he's in, on the fact, in fact, I think I might've told you recently that my wife likes to make fun of me about that very thing, Patrick. Um, that, well, I think that, it was Leo actually. That, I that, that, that Leo. I'll see, I'll see like, I'll see Adele on, on Carpool Karaoke and I'll be like, you know what? I kind of like Adele. She's pretty cool. Oh, you think so? Welcome to the party, George. Adele is like the biggest pop star in the world. Um, it was, it was that way with The Rock. It was that way with Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah, like like about once every six months, I'll say to my wife, you know who I really like? Kevin Hart. And she's like, everybody likes Kevin Hart. You know, welcome to the party. <laughs> um, <laughs> and all of those are actual examples, by the way. Um, all right, my last one. Speaking of somebody that, 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 that everybody likes, and if you don't, you should, um, or, or somebody who, whose genius is appreciated, but every now and then you forget that it's true genius. My last one has to do with a non-running thing, since, since we're, we're doing non-running things here in the last one, but and all three of mine, I realize, are, are, are YouTube clips that I'm pointing people to. I'm saying, go out and watch these videos, and, and Michelle is rolling her eyes and shaking her head at me, but next time we do this, if we do this again next week, I'll, I'll bring some, some books or something like that instead, but anyway, my third one is, is uh, to encourage all of you to go and to, to look for Prince Tom Petty, Steve Winwood, Jeff Lynn, and other people performing While My Guitar Gently Weeps at the 2004 Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductions. Um, they are inducting that year George Harrison. Um, and uh, is part of the induction ceremony, they have all of these big names come in and they sing some of the songs of George Harrison. Um, and like I said, you have Steve Winwood and Jeff Lynn and Tom Petty and the son of George Harris himself, uh, Danny Harrison, actually uh, singing uh, songs, uh, While My Guitar Gently Weeps, one of George Harrison's most famous songs. But they sing a much much uh, harder version, a much more rock version. And Jeff Lynne does most of the singing. Um, and then Tom Petty does most of the chorus. Um, and about halfway through the video, they basically just kind of devolve into a jam session. And Prince steps out and does the guitar solo at the end. And you think about Prince being like an artist and being a star and being like a cultural icon and that sort of thing. But sometimes you tend to forget that his musicianship was off the charts. Um, And he just completely shreds it on this stage with all these brilliant Hall of Fame musicians. He is just head and shoulders above everybody else. Um, And it's incredible. Um, And in addition, he's such a showman like at one point like the expressions on the face and the way he moves his body at one point he falls off the front of the stage and he has like an assistant catch him and push him back onto the stage um and and at the very end he takes the guitar and he throws it over his head and doesn't even look where it goes <laughs> um, and it's fun to watch too because like tom petty starts smiling at him about halfway through and danny harrison george harrison's son who this whole thing is for really is absolutely loving it is like looking at him and he's playing this guitar the whole time and everything Danny Harrison is, but he's looking at, at, at Prince and just absolutely loving it the whole time. And so 
um, it's, it's an inspirational, very uplifting performance. And, and like I said, it, it, it definitely reminds you of the genius that, that was uh, Prince. So I strongly suggest if you're looking for a seven minute video to brighten your day, as soon as you hear this, go out and check that out. Prince, Tom Petty, Steve Woodwind, Jeff Lynn, and others perform While My Guitar Gently Weeps, the 2004 Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductions. Have you seen it, Michelle? It's on YouTube and it's music. No. So? So, says Michelle, who made the playlist, the ITL track playlist for this week, and it was bomb, by the way. Yeah, I had, I mean, I've told you many times I had help with that. Yes, I just did. had two, two requirements, and we were able to make those happen. So. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Michelle, you say you don't like YouTube. You say you don't you like music. You go, you watch this video. Both those things will change. I'll let you know next week. Right on. Patrick, have you seen it? Not, no. Patrick is Patrick's going to watch it as soon as we get off. So we need to go ahead and wrap things up here really quickly so both of you can go watch this video. Thanks, everybody, for listening to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion podcast. We appreciate you joining us. Patrick, thanks for being here. Absolutely. So, Michelle, we'll see Love you next it. week, right? All right. Thanks, George. Have a good week. Thanks, everybody. That'll do it for another edition of the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. We appreciate you joining us. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash pleasantpodcast. You can find us on Twitter at pleasantpodcast. You can find us on Instagram, Most Pleasant Exhaustion. And you can always download our podcast from Stitcher, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. Don't forget to check out our sponsor, ITL Coaching and Performance at itlcoaching.com, on Twitter at itlcoaching. At Facebook, facebook.com slash ITL Coaching and Performance, and on Instagram, ITL Coaching. You can check out Blue Pineapple Travel at bluepineappletravel.com, on Facebook at facebook.com slash bluepineappletravel, or on Instagram, bluepineappletravel. And finally, Slayer X. You can find them at slayerx.com, on Facebook at facebook.com slash here for Slayer X. That's the number four, here for Slayer X on Instagram at here4slayrx, again the number four, and on Twitter at officialslayrx. Don't forget the discount code PLEASANT2020. On behalf of Patrick Ollinger and Michelle Frank, this is George Darden. We appreciate you joining us on the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. <laughs>